0: I never got any money from you be and now mr edwards i would like to make a disclosure which is something which has never been revealed to the public this is the saucer life exploring the history and lore of flying saucers the saucer life is a podcast in which we explore concepts events or people orbiting the world of flying saucers Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, plenty of talk of grain buying. This is Light's camera Reinhold. Sometimes there are figures in the flying saucer world that are fascinating, but with brief tenures in the field. Many times these folks can get overlooked. The Mitchell sisters, for example. Reinhold Schmidt is one of those types of figures. He was a contactee, but he was so much more, and somehow less. He gets mixed up with a number of figures, ufological and otherwise, and his claims are in some ways a kind of contacty greatest hits package. But there's some fun wrinkles here and there that sort of sort of set him apart. And that's before we get to the felonies. Well, some of the felonies. there's gonna be a number of felonies today. Okay. We need to start out with the barest basics of the story before we get into the weeds on some stuff, because there's definitely some weeds to get into. The basics, the most basics of the basics. On November 5th, 1957, near Kearney, Nebraska, Reinhold O. Schmidt had an alleged encounter with a UFO and its occupants. That's the basic story. So what do we know about Schmidt? Well, when was he born? And That's the first patch of weeds. Uh, A lot of the accounts from the time of his first encounter put Schmidt's age at 48. However, in... The most thorough account that he writes um, of his encounter, he says he was born February 16th, 1897, which would have made him 60 at the time of the encounter. And that's the age we're going with because that's what he said. And it's backed up by a number of other non-ufological sources and some corroborating evidence about his non-saucer activities. So anyway, Reinhold Oscar Albert Schmidt was born February 16th, 1897 in Adams County, Nebraska, to Carl and Minnie Schmidt. Sometime before 1930, he married a woman named Frieda, who was a few years younger than he was. The couple divorced at some point, probably prior to Schmidt's encounter, since he mentions his children but not a wife in his book. And Schmidt, from what I've been able to find, spent most of his working life involved in agriculture in some way— and by the time we catch up with him in the newspapers, was actively on the grain and produce buying side of things. In terms of his appearances in the public press, let's start seven years before his alleged encounter. In 1950, Schmidt was involved in two separate criminal enterprises in Greeley, Colorado, According to the Greeley Daily Tribune from January 26, 1950, he was accused of, um, as a potato buyer, he bought a load of potatoes from a guy, uh, sold them, kept the money, and then went back to the guy he bought the potatoes from saying that, that he'd been held up and the potatoes stolen. I think that's how it works. So basically, hey, I'll take your potatoes and sell them to the buyer and I'll keep a percentage. I'm driving your potatoes to the place. Oh my gosh, I'm being robbed. And then he keeps all the money. Later in the year, Reinhold uh, committed a little bit of fraud. He was accused of uh, receiving, well, not receiving, of intercepting a piece of mail that had a $750 check in it. He takes it to a bank cashes it, keeping a hundred out in cash and depositing the rest in an account. And by the time the bank figures out he's not who he says he was and um, sort of you know reverses the credit on his account, he he isn't going to give back the hundred dollars says it was an honest mistake. I couldn't find any report of any sort of trial or sentencing for these accusations, but there was an earlier encounter with the law that came out, When the saucer story broke, this occurred in his native Nebraska in 1938, where he'd been sentenced to a couple years in prison for embezzlement. You may wonder why I'm bringing all this up. Am I just trying to poison the well to frame Reinhold Schmidt as a fraud before we get to his contact story? No, not really. Um, What I'm attempting to do is provide some context for some of the things we're going to be seeing. Reinhold Schmidt's encounter was November 5th, 1957, On November 6th, the Lincoln, Nebraska Journal covered it in a story by Bill Heinel, a writer for the journal. A man identified as Reinhold O. Schmidt, 48, of Brawley, California, apparently stuck to his story of visiting what appeared to be a spaceship on the sandy banks of the Platte River near here. The grain buyer had undergone almost constant questioning since late Tuesday afternoon when he first made the report. Two men in civilian clothes who would not give their names spent a good part of the morning with Schmidt and an attorney. The men said they were special investigators of the Air Defense Command at Ent Air Force Base, Colorado Springs. The two investigators said they cannot comment on the investigation. They said tape recordings were made during their talk with Schmidt, and he made sketches, presumably of the mystery ship, for them, all of which would be returned to Ent Headquarters for analysis. The men indicated they would inspect the purported landing site near the river. Chief of Police Thurston Nelson says Schmidt refused to sign a release authorizing a lie detector test. The police had planned to bring a lie detector from Grand Island. Schmidt asked for an attorney, and thereafter was reported represented by Ward Minor of Kearney, who was also Kearney's city attorney. When not being questioned, Schmidt was held for the sheriff at the city jail without charge for questioning. Schmidt told his story to Chief Nelson, Deputy Sheriff Dave Draggy, City Manager Ray Lundy, and Kearney Hub Editor Ed Chittenden, who later accompanied him to the riverside. The story hit the city like wildfire. Everyone seemed to be talking about it, some firmly believing the story, others disbelieving. Numerous jokes and light remarks were making the rounds. Chittenden said he had never seen so many newsmen and investigators in Kearney before. Investigators made several visits to the site, but were able to turn up little beyond the Californians' original report of visiting the ship, manned by two women and four men who spoke broken English and German. Chief Nelson said the officers found footprints at the site and large, round, shallow marks about the size of the bottom of a pail, which Schmidt maintained were made by the legs of the strange craft, and spots, as Schmidt said, were oil spots. It was reported the residue was being tested, but nobody could be pinned down on it. Kearney State College was reported to be testing the oil, but Maxine Wardrop, publicity director, denied it. Local officers said a can of oil was found in the vicinity of the reported sighting, and said later a can of oil of the same brand was found in Schmidt's auto. However, the cans of oil were not further connected with the residue at the scene. Schmidt told the persons here he entered a field of Milo, about two miles south and a little east of Kearney, to inspect the grain. When ready to leave, he drove down the side road seeking a place to turn around. When he neared the river, he saw what appeared to be a wrecked balloon on the bank. His auto suddenly stopped. He walked to the object, which appeared to be about 100 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 14 feet high. About 30 feet from it, he was stopped short by a beam of light that shot from the object and, quote, sort of froze me. I couldn't move. Then two men came out of the machine and asked if I had any weapons, end quote. Schmidt replied he didn't. Then, after he was searched, the men dressed in business suits, and that, as long as they were going to be there for a time, quote, you might as well come in and see things for a few minutes, end quote. Schmidt entered the silvery-looking machine. Quote, I was pretty scared, but I noticed when they wanted to go from one place to another, they would just step on certain places on the floor and would be pulled to the new locations without, so far as I could see, the floor moving like magnetic power. The men who greeted me told me to tell my people they were not here to do any harm, but they told me they could not say anything about the machine or tell where they came from. They did say there might be an announcement in the near future. The occupants talked among themselves in high German, which I understand to an extent, end quote. Schmidt said he thought he was inside the machine about 30 minutes. He said that after he left and had walked a short distance away, there was a flash. The machine rose to a height of about 200 feet and then disappeared, blending into the gray skies and apparently heading southwest. Schmidt got his car started, went to the sheriff's office to tell his story, and then to police headquarters to tell it again. Associates of Schmidt and Brawley said he's a quiet man, reliable, and a non-drinker. His boss, Donald Whittle, said Schmidt had worked for Value Pack about six weeks as a grain buyer. Quote, he's not the type to fabricate something, end quote. Schmidt formerly lived in Bakersfield, California, and had been employed by a major fertilizer firm in Los Angeles. He previously lived in Wilcox, Arizona. So that, that was long it's a fairly extensive account. And I actually edited it down a little bit. So that was in a Nebraska newspaper written by a local reporter. The same day, November 6th, Schmidt's story was in newspapers around the country. Thanks to the UPI wire service picking up on the story and relaying it around to all of their, you know, various affiliate newspapers. Many of the accounts are obviously very similar. And the, the one I've, I've chosen, uh, Some quotes from as an exemplar of this is from the front page of the Columbia City, Indiana commercial mail. And I chose that almost entirely because it's my hometown. Ex-convict claims he chatted with six persons in spaceship. Authorities today held a heart-to-heart talk with a salesman, later discovered to be an ex-convict, who claimed he chatted with four men and two women in a transparent spaceship. Schmidt's tale, strange as any science fiction story, stirred considerable excitement in the Kearney area for a time. Police roped off the spot where the Whatnick allegedly landed and examined various impressions and oil stains in the ground. But curiosity turned to skepticism when Scotts Bluff County Sheriff Steve Warwick revealed that Schmidt, a former potato buyer in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, was a former convict who had served time in the Nebraska penitentiary for embezzlement. However, Schmidt stuck by his story. Police said they held a heart-to-heart talk with him Tuesday night and planned further questioning today. Schmidt said the walls of the ship were transparent from the inside and contained, quote, a maze of dials, instrument, and wiring, end quote. He was in the ship 20 or 30 minutes. He quoted the spaceman as saying, We'll have to be here a little while. You may as well come inside. They appeared to be working on the wiring, the salesman said, and did not offer to explain any of the equipment. They spoke among themselves in German, Schmidt said. Finally, he said, they told him to get out, and the ship, the propellers whirring, took off like a helicopter. So, there are some significant differences here, aren't there? Or at least additional information. The the second account provides some additional knowledge about the features of the spaceship, but also makes note of Schmidt's criminal past. The first report, amidst the criminal element, and provides way more information about the procedures and processes Schmidt went through while relaying his story. Another story, from the Great Bend, Kansas Tribune on November 7th, expands on the Air Force angle as well as Schmidt's legal past. The North American Air Defense Command reported today it received 46 reports of unidentified objects from throughout the nation last night, but only three, including one from Kearney, Nebraska, quote, deserved further study. Captain Andy Beasley, NORAD public information officer, said two Air Force investigators were sent to Kearney after a Californian, R.O. Schmidt, told of sighting a cigar-shaped object on a Nebraska prairie and chatting with four men and two women in it. Beasley said the command had not yet decided whether to assign inspectors to the other two reported sightings. He did not say where these reports came from. Whenever such a story is carried by major news networks, Beasley added, quote, we get a rash of reports on unidentified objects. It only takes one report to set off such a rash, he said. In Garing, Nebraska, Scottsbluff County Sheriff Steve Warwick said he had talked to Schmidt by telephone last night and had urged him to tell Kearney officers the truth. He's just a mixed-up boy, Warwick said, adding that Schmidt had been sent to the penitentiary for embezzlement and that Scottsbluff County officers had had complaints against him for issuing bad checks. State penitentiary records in Lincoln showed that a Reinhold O. Schmidt had been committed from Scottsbluff County in 1938 for embezzlement and was paroled from his one- to two-year sentence in November 1939. Warwick said he's known Schmidt for years and called him, quote, a character. He said Schmidt had left Scottsbluff in about 1953 and gone to California. So there were other sightings going on at the time, but they didn't want to release details of those. And I think the strangest thing here is the sheriff calling Schmidt a mixed-up boy. He's 60. 60-year-old 60 kids these days making up stories about flying cigar-shaped objects. So fast forward, and in May of 1958, Schmidt told the story of his encounter in a booklet entitled The Kearney Incident Up to Now. It was edited by an Anna E. Kepi. Footnote noise there. In the book, Anna billed herself as, quote, editor, lecture tour assistant, and member of the Kearney investigation team, which made me want to find out more about her. However, all I was able to figure out about Anna was what I found in her obituary, but it's interesting, to me at least. Born in 1917, she was a native of Davenport, Iowa, graduated from Iowa State University in 1941 with a degree in home economics, and Iowa State was the top home economics school in the uh, the nation at that point, and probably forever. After working in Iowa for a while, she moved to Chicago and worked in management for Carson Perry Scott & Company, or as you may remember it, Carson's Department Stores, now sadly diminished to one sad little website. Following her stint at Carson's, she worked for Childcraft and World Books as a national traveling supervisor, which sounds like a heck of a busy job. Now, I assume you're thinking I've got the wrong Anna Kepi, but while in Chicago, according to her obituary, she was active in something called the Cosmic Circle of Friendship and was the director of the New Age Forum, quote, sponsoring speakers from all over the United States. So there we have the connection to the lecture tour that Schmidt was on. In one of the memorial comments on the obituary site, um, a great niece of Anna's uh, talks about remembering many afternoons sitting at her kitchen table talking to Anna about UFOs and related topics. And um, just from the obituary and from the comments people left, Anna Kepi sounds like an absolute gem of a person and far too nice to have been mixed up with Reinhold Schmidt. So... The Kearney Incident, the booklet. Schmidt opens the tale with an astoundingly detailed account of just what he was doing in Kearney, Nebraska on November 5th, 1957. My name is Reinhold O. Schmidt. I am a grain buyer from California. On October 25th, 1957, I was transferred from Arizona to Kearney, Nebraska by my employer, a firm of Brawley, California. At other times of the year, I buy grain for another company of Los Angeles, California. In leaving Arizona, I left a foreman in charge of my corn picking and shelling operations at Wilcox, Arizona. I was using three Minneapolis Moline picker shellers there, which I had purchased on contract. The afternoon of November 5th, a dark and misty day, I was inspecting some fields of milo and corn I had bought, and some that I planned to buy. I was four miles south and a mile east of Kearney when I turned to the left on a river road to inspect a large field of milo. Now, being... If not a farm boy, then at least a boy who grew up surrounded by farms and farmers. I understood just about every single word of that, except for Milo. Milo, it turns out, uh, is a uh, a name for a type of commercial sorghum. So there's, there's Milo for you. See, this show isn't just about flying saucers. There's valuable agribusiness knowledge you can learn here. So Schmidt is there checking out fields. He pulls into an abandoned farm to turn around as was reported in that initial story, sees a flash, he decides to check it out. But as he drives up close, about 100 feet away from where he saw the flash, his car stops working. He then sees, quote, what appeared to me to be a large half-inflated balloon, end quote. He walks towards it and finds that it's not a balloon at all, but what he calls a large silvery ship of some kind of metal that looked like polished steel or aluminum. He kept walking toward it. When I was about thirty feet from the ship, a pencil-like stream of light shot out from the ship and hit me across my upper chest. I don't know whether I was scared stiff or paralyzed by the ray of light, but anyway, I couldn't walk or move my arms. Then a door slid open in the ship, and two men came toward me. They asked if I was armed. I said no, but they frisked me anyway. However, they didn't take anything from me. By this time, I could move again. I asked them what they were doing there, what kind of ship this was, and where they were from. They said they couldn't tell me at the time. I asked if I could come closer to see the ship, and they said yes, for they couldn't leave for a few minutes anyway, and I was invited to come aboard. Inside, the leader said I could look around, but not to touch anything. Inside, the walls looked like foot-thick glass, almost like the silver exterior of the ship was a sort of one-way mirror. Inside the ship were its crew. There were four men and two ladies inside the ship. The men were dressed in street clothes, approximately 5 foot 8 inches tall, weighing about 170 pounds. The two ladies appeared to be about the same height, weighing about 120 to 130 pounds, and I guessed their ages to be about 40. Their complexions were rather dark, like a sun pan. The ladies were brunettes and wore light-colored blouses and dark skirts, and medium-heeled shoes. The crew worked at control panels that had gauges, columns filled with colored liquid that moved up and down, he said, like pistons in an automobile. Schmidt didn't recognize any of the gauges or dials, but noted that they used both Roman and, his word, regular numerals. The center of the main console contained a large TV-like screen, and he noted that the people, and this was in the news reports as well, seemed to glide rather than walk, and he, quote, wondered if they had something special on their shoes, end quote. I think this is evidence that those stupid wheelie shoes kids were wearing years ago were reverse-engineered from alien technology. Reinhold had some interaction with the crew, but mainly his conversations were confined to their leader. All of the occupants of the ship greeted me and bid me farewell. In leaving, they said, we will see you again. Little did I realize that they meant what they said. Other than that, the one man did all the talking. And by the way, this man looked and talked just like a man that was watching TV with me in the hotel lobby the night before. On the ship, he said, tell your people we know they have seen the ship before and they will see it again. The leader shares some predictions about the U.S. satellite program, namely the failure of the December 1957 Project Vanguard launch. Like most prophecies from Space Brothers, it wasn't worth much since the prophecy was only publicized after the event prophesied had come to pass. Of course, and and we're giving giving Schmidt the benefit of the doubt here, if Schmidt had actually encountered people who had told him about U.S. satellite launch information a month before it occurred— it would explain the very quick presence and arrival of Air Force officials questioning him. And one of the most referenced part of the account is that Schmidt explains that these euphonauts spoke with German accents and among themselves spoke high German, which Schmidt was able to understand. Soon after, he exits the ship and after it's off in the sky out of sight, he's able to start his car again. He's freaked out and decides the best thing to do is report the encounter to someone, thinking initially that what he encountered might have been, quote, a Russian ship manned by German scientists. He wants to see a minister first, but a minister isn't available. Then Reinhold goes to see the sheriff, but only the deputy was available at the time. They drive out to the site, and Reinhold claims he and the deputy saw the imprints from the landing struts of the craft, as well as some green oil. There was a second expedition with Schmidt, the deputy, the chief of police, the city attorney, and a local newspaper man, as described in the article, and they all examined the site, which remained unchanged. Everyone saw the imprints and the oil in the sand, and they all agreed that there had been a large object of some kind sitting there. The deputy and I stepped off in the distance between the imprints and the sand, and we estimated the ship to be 100 feet long and 30 feet wide, and I estimated it was about 14 feet high. I asked again if they didn't think it's a good idea to rope off the area and call someone in authority and report the ship. They said it wouldn't be necessary as there were five witnesses here and they were convinced that a large ship had landed here. We gathered some of the greenish oil in a small mustard glass we found on the riverbank. The chief of police said he would have it tested. We drove back to town and they left me off at the Fort Kearney Hotel where I was staying. So all of this is, is lining up more or less, with the account from the Lincoln Evening Press, although Schmidt doesn't address the fact that the imprints looked like they'd been made with a pail or a bucket. Schmidt recounts that he was called back into the police station to man the phones and answer questions from reporters all night. They said they actually set him up in a little office and and all the phones routed to him and he would just talk to whoever called. Early in the morning, however, everything sort of changed as far as how the local officials felt about Schmidt's story. The activity continued all night until between 5 and 6 a.m. when the officials changed their story and suggested that I change mine too. I told them that they could change their story if they wished, but I wouldn't change my story unless it was for the security of the United States. This they couldn't prove, so I stayed with it. Then they asked me if I'd take a lie detector test. Not now, I said. I've been talking for 16 hours, but I will after I've had a few hours rest. So here, Schmidt echoes the report that he had refused a lie detector test and and gives a pretty reasonable explanation why. It was at this point that he was ordered to be held without being charged, and later, on the morning of the 6th, the Air Force questioning began. And there's a fun exchange that Schmidt puts in his book in The Kearney Incident that hints that the Air Force knows about the spacecraft and how they work. While in this session, one of the local officials from Kearney wondered out loud how the ship could go straight up, forgetting himself. One of the Air Force officials replied, oh, we know what makes it go straight up. Local authorities then informed Schmidt that they found the oil can in his trunk that explained the deposits near the landing site, and and Schmidt in his book goes to some length to explain how this was a setup. Regardless, pressure on Schmidt to recant his story continued. He was assigned an assistant city attorney to represent him, which Schmidt claims he tried to refuse and that he wasn't allowed to bring in an attorney of his own. On the 7th, Schmidt underwent a mental health evaluation and was committed for observation to the state hospital at Hastings. (laughs) ¶¶ I should note here that I did look into getting uh, the records on Schmidt from the Nebraska State Hospital system, but those records are restricted for 75 years from the last date of entry in the file, and uh, I will uh, try to remember to get that information in 2032 and update you. So he was at the Hastings State Hospital for 12 or 13 days and then released. He went back to his job, and his boss said that everyone was behind him. They all believed his story. And then he has another encounter. This would have been, according to Schmidt, on February 5th, 1958. His car again stopped of its own accord, and in the meadow next to him, the ship landed. Reinhold says the man who was in command from his first visit popped out and asked if Schmidt could do them a favor. Answering in the affirmative, they all get back on the craft and they fly around for a while and land back again in another dry riverbed as they had done before. There, the space commander tells Schmidt that the spacemen need answers to three important questions. One. What would the United States do if other planets were to set off atomic bombs and to start Sputniks and other satellites flying around which would affect the Earth and interrupt its radio and TV operations and other devices? Two. What was the plane carrying that disintegrated over the Pacific on the way from San Francisco to Honolulu, besides passengers? Three. How would your people react if a fleet of these ships would land on a friendly mission? Would they accept us on friendly terms? Schmidt promises to get the answers, and when he asks how he can contact them, is told the space folks will get in touch. They'd been monitoring his brain patterns and could use this pattern to find him in the future anywhere he might be. In this passage, Schmidt talks about how his relationship with the space people had developed a little bit and his own leeriness of telling more stories about his encounters. Although they asked me no questions the first time we met, they seemed to know all about me. And the second time, they greeted me by my first name, Reinhold. I told them about all the trouble I had for reporting their first visit. Yes, we knew about it, I was told, and we were standing by. If they hadn't released you from the hospital by a certain time, we would have put on a mass demonstration over Kearney and made ourselves known. Following this encounter... The heading for this section is Schmidt Learns from Experience. Reinhold bypasses the authorities this time and takes the story straight to the folks on the saucer scene. In this case, a Major Wayne Aho of an organization called Washington Saucer Intelligence. (laughs) The footnote noise is getting a workout this week. Um, Aho and his associates are a story and a half, and it's a story we'll be covering not too far down the road. So don't worry, Wayne Aho fans. Schmidt and Aho meet up in Davenport, Iowa, and presumably Anna Kepi gets involved at this point. Schmidt gives lectures in Kearney and recounts that there was a UFO sighting accompanying the lecture stop there. To end the book, Schmidt explains that he was not an aficionado of the saucer scene before his encounter. I had heard something about flying saucers, as everyone has over the years, from reports in newspapers, etc., but I'd never paid any particular attention to the subject. As I've often said, I didn't believe, I didn't disbelieve, but they certainly made a believer out of me. As to books, I hadn't read any on the subject before my experience, and I haven't read any since either. He also provides an answer to one of the questions from the Space Brothers. The plane that went down between San Francisco and Honolulu was apparently, and he cites some newspaper stories here, carrying radioactive material. Finally, following Reinhold's account, Anna Kepi pops back in and provides the following corroborating evidence for Schmidt's story. Reinhold Schmidt is often asked, do you think your meeting with the spaceship was an accident or planned by the visitors? Schmidt thinks the first meeting was an accident. Others do not agree. If not an accident, then why did they choose him? Many want to know. Schmidt does not pretend to have the answer, but again, others have ideas. Here are some reasons that have been presented to the editor as to why Mr. Schmidt may have been chosen as a contactee by the visitors. He has a commanding physique. His hands tell a story of a soul that has found a kind of peace. The way he puts it over. He is a friend of every man, farmers, etc., he is a representative of Midwestern America. He has physical health. He has courage. He has a spiritual withinness. He has a sense of humor, a sense of kindness, and a sense of loyalty. Well, I'm convinced. But really, there's some interesting sort of regionalism and class consciousness stuff going on here. He's a Midwesterner, and, and while not a farmer, he's a friend to them and every man. Why list this among the reasons he should be believed or why the space people would contact him? Well, if this booklet was produced for sale during his lecture tour of the Midwest, there is a very definitely an appeal to Schmidt being as of the same background as his audience. And interestingly, by this point in his life, Schmidt had probably lived as much in California and other parts of the West as he had the Midwest. But the phrasing here a representative of the midwest not a native not a resident a representative is is sort of cautious and weasley i don't know this whole you know this whole little reasons why they chose him is is just great schmidt would soon expand his speaking tours to points further west as we'll see after this short break You can check out past episodes, read reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. And we very much appreciate those who've contributed to the show, whether it's financially, leaving a five-star review at Apple Podcasts, telling people about the show on social media, emailing us with show ideas, or sending us strange things in the mail. And just to let you know what happens uh, to your love offerings, one example of how we've been able to use them is that they've enabled us to subscribe to some of these newspaper archives, which lets us add some uh, nice wrinkles to some of these stories, such as the many crimes of Reinhold Schmidt. We're on Twitter and Instagram at SaucerLife, or you can email us at thesaucerlife.com. Safe, legal, and interesting physical materials may be sent to us by post at Chizomedia, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blanc, Michigan 48480. The Saucer Life, as I assume you realize since you're listening to it, is available anywhere you can find podcasts. There are some reports in various newspapers, mostly in the West, about Schmidt's time on the lecture circuit. In May 1958, one of his earliest lectures, Reinhold appeared in Tucson with Wayne Aho. In Tucson, he related the story told in the Kearney incident, but added this wrinkle. He claims that while he was held by Kearney police without access to a telephone, a farm equipment company repossessed equipment he had ordered for use in the Wilcox, Arizona area where he was having dealings at the time. The repossession cost me $15,000, Schmidt said. If I could have made one phone call, I could have prevented the loss. It's just another way to emphasize the injustice of the treatment he received. And much like the representative of the Midwest description, a means of establishing a connection to uh, the region, particularly Arizona. But the thing is, why didn't he mention this in the booklet, The Kearney Incident?, um, he mentioned that he had stuff going on in Arizona. He talked about the uh, the, the actual brand of the, uh, the the pickers and shellers that he was that was being used that he had just purchased. Why, when he was sitting supposedly in a room full of telephones at the police station, didn't he just try to make a telephone call? I know this could have been prevented by the police, but it. I mean, it just doesn't match up with with anything else, that he slipped this in, that, by the way, I lost $15,000 because of this, so it must be true, kind of attitude. The article uh, is from the May 3rd, 1958 edition of the Tucson Daily Citizen, and it concludes with the exciting news that a group of space scouts had been formed at the meeting to watch the skies, and they would be formally organizing themselves into a flying saucer club in the coming weeks. And I really like this ad for... Um, for a speaking engagement from the November 11th, 1960 edition of the Arroyo Grande Valley Herald Recorder in California. Flying Saucer Lecture. World famous speaker Reinhold O. Schmidt, he's been on Flying Saucers, will show pictures. This is not a religious lecture. Saturday, November 12th, Grover City Women's Club, 11th and Saratoga Streets. Not a religious lecture. And hopefully, that women's club was an easier audience than the one he'd had earlier in the year in San Rafael, California, where the headline in the March 10, 1960 edition of the Daily Independent Journal read, ''Spaceship rider given tough cross-examination.'' Yes, Reinhold Schmidt's story was taken apart by a group of youth ranging in age from 5th grade to high school. They made up a large part of the audience for the talk, which was sponsored by a local unit of the group Understanding, an organization run by contactee Daniel Fry, who we are getting to very soon. Don't worry, Daniel Fry fans. So Reinhold's story, as relayed in the newspaper, had been expanded since the initial incident in Kearney. He had experienced more contacts, and here's how the newspaper presented those. He said his trips in that same spaceship since, with those same six persons who later identified themselves as people from Saturn, have taken him to 1. The Arctic Circle, where the ship, operating as a submarine, took him to the floor of the ocean so he could see underwater missile bases built by the Russians. He also saw prehistoric animals being thawed out of the ice, but that was all right. On a later visit, they were freezing up again. 2. Egypt, where one of his Saturnian guides unlocked a secret room of a pyramid that had never been entered in 1,960 years, and Schmidt copied a lengthy message from a plaque printed, quote, in the American language, one of 32 plaques printed in different languages. Also inside the secret pyramid room was a 60-foot spaceship, he declared, and inside the spaceship, also sealed up for 1,960 years, were the cross on which Christ died and Jesus' sandals and robe. Jesus, his guides, told him, quote, ascended to heaven or to another planet, end quote, in that spaceship, something less than 1,960 years ago if the Julian calendar airs only four years on the birth of Christ, as calendar experts claim. Three, a 4,000-foot-long mothership which was, quote, very high up over Montana, end quote, for a return trip to the Arctic to show him the, quote, Russian missile bases had been destroyed by the U.S. Navy. He said he had just returned from that trip on February 11th. But all this was merely a warm-up. On his next trip, the Saturnians had promised to take him on a tour of the planets. Moreover, they've promised to provide him with films so he can take all the pictures he wants to bring back and prove where he's been. Our own film won't work, he explained, because the spaceship sets up a magnetic field which exposes them. He tried it, and so far he hasn't been allowed to bring back any souvenirs. The Saturnians look just like you and me, said Schmidt. You couldn't pick them out of a crowd, and they dress as we do, at least on their visits to our planet. So, after a couple of years, we have a planet of origin for the beings, and as well, we see that Schmidt has been getting into the ancient astronaut side of things. In particular, his ideas here, especially about pyramids, uh, echo quite a bit of uh, our old pal George Hunt Williamson, and very mysteriously... um, Schmidt is saying some very similar things to what Williamson was saying in his recently released book, Secret Places of the Lion. So, about those meddling kids who asked awkward questions. Schmidt went into quite a few details for about an hour, but then he opened the meeting for questions from the floor, and the kids were wicked. A high school youth piped up, quote, Saturn happens to be about minus 240 degrees. Wouldn't those people kind of fry on this earth at plus 70 degrees? Schmidt shrugged. They didn't, he said. Another teenage boy was mighty interested in those 32 tablets in the pyramid, one of them in English. There wasn't any English language 1,960 years ago, he pointed out. Schmidt couldn't explain that either. Schmidt said the spaceship flew from Bakersfield to the Arctic in one hour and 20 minutes with stops in Alaska and Greenland en route. Quote, and they told me they were just taking it kind of slow, end quote. "'Someone wanted to know whether the ship could exceed the speed of light.' "'I don't know what the speed of light is,' said Schmidt. "'They told me it took them about 11 hours to come the 73 million miles from Saturn. "'Astronomers figure the distance from the Earth to Saturn in a direct line, "'if both are in the same relation to the Sun, is 794 million miles.' "'What's the real name of their planet?' asked another teenager. "'They told me Saturn,' replied Schmidt. "'Said the youth, disappointed, "'they got that from us.' And then there was a young boy, about a fifth grader, who kept insisting that Schmidt should have brought some souvenir out of that secret room in the pyramid. He brought it up repeatedly. Finally, Schmidt declared, You couldn't get nothing out of that pyramid. You couldn't get it past the guards. These additional encounters would appear in My Contact with the Space People, a slightly longer booklet Schmidt would release in 1961. The first part of the booklet recounts his original story as told in the Kearney incident with a bit more detail. One significant or substantive change in this version here is that the man in charge of the craft with whom Reinhold speaks is given a name, sort of. He'll be known as Mr. X. Why Schmidt thought it necessary to give him a name is unclear, but it does make for smoother reading, which is reason enough. In another major change, Schmidt makes it very clear that from the very first encounter, they told him that they were from Saturn, which didn't come across in earlier uh, earlier tellings at all. The contacts pick up again, he explains, in April 1958. Following a lecture in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Schmidt is drawn to a black MG Roadster sitting at the corner. Who should be sitting in it but Mr. X and one of the ladies from the spaceship. After we greeted each other, Mr. X asked if I would like to take a little ride with them. I told him I would be delighted to, and I got in the car. We drove about six miles down the main highway, then turned off the pavement onto a dirt road. There ahead stood a big silver spaceship. As we approached it, a beam of light shot out from it. Mr. X dropped his hands from the steering wheel, and the car was pulled up the ramp via the beam into the ship. We didn't have a flight this time, but instead remained aboard right there where the ship was landed. For about two hours we talked. Mr. X very graciously accepted the answers I gave him to the questions he had asked. We discussed many things, including some information which I do not yet have permission to reveal publicly. However, I want to mention this contact as a matter of record, and I look forward to the time when I will be allowed to explain the reason for their visit at that particular time. I don't believe he ever got the chance to reveal that particular bit of information, but I do like the idea of the car driving up a ramp into the spaceship. The cutaway diagram of the ship in the book, however, shows a car that looks more like a VW Beetle, not quite but that's the closest approximation it doesn't look like an mg at all in june he has another contact with mr x and in here are some clues for what would be coming down the road for reinhold then he asked me if i could be ready by that evening to leave for the arctic circle i told him that i would have to make a few phone calls and then i could meet him he suggested that i drive to my rock quarry off highway 6 about 40 miles north of mojave Incidentally, my Saturnian friends were instrumental in my getting into the quarry business. I have four quarries now, which they pointed out to me and helped me to acquire. They showed me how a valuable metal could be extracted from the rocks of one of the quarries. This metal is similar to that which the Saturnians use in the construction of their spaceships. When certain improvements in our social and economic systems have been made, which will qualify us to associate with those people who have already learned how to work and live together in peace and friendship, then we of Earth will be able to use this metal in the construction of spaceships in which we also can visit other planets. Hmm, Reinhold is getting into the mining business. Interesting, that won't come back to haunt him at all. So during this trip, uh, they went to, to Greenland, to Alaska, to check on mineral deposits, and also the Arctic Circle. And we get into some more familiar contactee territory with discussion about atomic weapons testing. In just one hour and 20 minutes, we were over the Arctic Circle. Mr. X pointed out many things of interest. I saw a place where there had once been ice caps over 1,000 feet high. Today, that area is water. This reversal was caused by the blasts of atomic bombs, which so changed the atmosphere that the great ice caps began to melt. There have been many atmospheric changes in a relatively short time. Because of these changes, some of our former vast frozen areas have now become warm and tropical. The Arctic has been extremely cold for thousands of years, but now it is beginning to thaw. Continued testing of the A-bombs could further upset our weather, and even our planet's stability on its axis, which, unless prevented, could lead to unimaginable destruction. When you have actually seen some of these changes for yourself, you realize what is happening to the surface of the Earth, and what more could happen very soon unless something is done to change the trend of man's folly. Looking down on that boundless and changing Arctic region was an awe-inspiring, thought-provoking experience." I think it's refreshing to get some perspective on this that's a little less focused on the upsetting of the cosmic balance and focused more on terrestrial and practical things, um, such as the melting of the polar ice caps. On this trip, Schmidt also learns that the space people would not permit any atomic war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, that they have the means of stopping them and, and throwing a nation's weapons back at them if they try to launch them. They would do so, however, only if the fate of the galaxy was threatened. But they don't sort of explain how that would be. Any lasting peace, however, has to come from within humanity, regardless of the Saturnians' ability to uh, to to deflect or redirect nuclear weapons. Permanent change has to come from within us. Also, the Saturnians have a device which uh, was cleaning up radiation from our atmosphere, which was you know pretty nice of them. Reinhold is then served some coffee. The coffee maker, which is identical to a standard percolator but without a power cord, uses the same free energy that powers the ship. There are a few additional adventures recorded in the book, stories similar to those told at the California talk where Schmidt was peppered with questions and skepticism. He learns also that great cataclysms are coming, and that the end of the present Earth cycle will come in 1998, and that the period from 1958 to 1998 was, quote, a preparation for the coming of the Master. Schmidt ends his book on a somewhat positive note. To you who accept these things, I say that there is much to be done. If you wish to be an active part of the establishing of a harmonious, peaceful, and abundant life on our earth for all people, your sincere desire will lead you to the right place to be of service. My wonderful experiences are not over, for my Saturnian friends have promised me the greatest experience yet, A tour of the planets. On that occasion, they said five other persons will be taken also, but I do not yet know who they will be. There is much to look forward to, and I give you my solemn promise that I will faithfully bring to you the true messages from my space friends as I receive them. Meanwhile, let us all work together to make our Earth home a far better and happier place than it has ever been before. Later, the book would be reissued with a new title, Edge of Tomorrow. Why? well, to tie in with the release of the film of the same name. Yes, a film. Director Ron Ormond and his wife June were behind this, and Ormond had been responsible for a number of interesting films, including 1953's Mesa of Lost Women, which got the Mystery Science Theater 3000-style treatment from the Mystery Science Theater 3000 alumni at rift Tracks a few years ago. It is a terrible movie. Um... The Ormonds were pals with some people in the UFO scene, including contactees Dan Fry and Dana Howard. And the film premiered, which was the film was basically just his contact experiences, more or less. And it premiered at the Wiltshire Ebel Theater on May 28, 1961, to an audience of over 1,000. Now, Jim Mosley's Saucer News newsletter had a review of this movie from Fred Broman in which he described the film as, quote, a hopelessly boring, technically inadequate, poorly photographed hodgepodge of inanities. Harsh. Even harsher, Broman brought up Schmidt's 1938 legal trouble. The film itself is currently unavailable. I've not found it online and haven't seen it for sale. The rights issues, from what I understand, are very tangled, and I'm hoping that at some point it will get re-released. I have, however, had the opportunity to view the film. I don't have a copy I can share, so don't ask me, but I can tell you this. It's not a great movie, and Fred Broman's review was pretty on point. Going from the notes I took while um, while watching it, here's a synopsis with a narrator intoning that, quote, people become martyrs for a variety of reasons, end quote. We see a car driving down the road and Edge of Tomorrow begins somewhat ominously with, you know, Reinhold Schmidt is going to be a martyr. The narrator explains who Schmidt is as uh, Schmidt himself drives around Kearney, Nebraska with a cameraman in the passenger seat filming through the windshield with apparently no idea where he's going and no destination in mind. At one point, he appears to come really close to hitting some pedestrians, and then he's waving to kids as he drives by a school playground They swing by a large building, and the narrator explains that this is some mental hospital in California, and it's just like the one in Hastings, Nebraska, where Schmidt underwent prolonged sanity testing. Then we're driving with Schmidt and the camera operator out to the Milo field for what seems like an eternity. In reality, it's only a minute or so, but a minute of watching grainy, blurry fields go by is more than plenty. The car stops. Reinhold gets out and watches a farmer tilling his field as the narrator explains that tractors have replaced horses and we're living in a new age. Then Reinhold gets back in his car and keeps driving. Then the narrator says, quote, for no apparent reason whatsoever, Reinhold Schmidt pulls into a deserted farmhouse to turn around. And that is so weird because we know from what he wrote why he turned around. He needed to go the other way. He'd inspected the field and was heading back to Kearney. Why make this a mystery? Also, at this point, we are five minutes into a 50-minute film and absolutely nothing has happened yet. And the camera spends another 30 seconds lovingly panning past deserted wagons and carriages to demonstrate that this is a deserted farm. Then, finally, the flash of light happens and we're on our way to the actual UFO story. He sees the craft, walks over to it, is paralyzed briefly, and then is drawn in. That whole sequence of him Seeing the ship and walking into it takes another five minutes. The scene then shifts to an office where Schmidt is interviewed by, quote, "...Bill Anson, well-known radio and TV personality. His hobby? Investigating the unknown, the unbelievable," end quote. The questions he asks are supposed to be a summary of the thousands that investigators have wanted to know from Schmidt, and much of the Q&A here echoes what we saw in his books. Here, another quotation from Fred Broman's review is relevant. The bulk of the picture comprises an endlessly tedious, badly photographed interview between Schmidt and one Bill Anson. Why Schmidt's illiterate grammar was not improved by employing a teleprompter or idiot cards, this reviewer will never know. The film presumably cost $20,000, but even at union rates, this figure seems unnecessarily high. Reinhold Schmidt, playing himself, was excruciatingly self-conscious and static throughout the film. As for acting and direction, neither of these qualities was evident. They show off a cutaway diagram picture of the ship. On a page linked to in the show notes, you can see the same thing yourself. Smitty, as he's called here, reveals that the material in those cylinders that we talked about was liquid light. The scene seems at least partially improvised to a great degree, at least Schmidt's portion. They go over various parts of the ship's diagram, and we learn that the ships can go down into the water, like we heard about with the Arctic, and there's propellers for underwater travel. We are in deep realms of minutiae here, as Schmidt and the interviewer discuss the details of suction and water displacement. Finally, 18 minutes into the film, we get into the spaceship itself. Some stills from the film were used in the reissue of Schmidt's second book, and I've got a link to some pictures from that book in the show notes so you can get an idea of how the ship portrayed the film and its crew. And one of the things that jumped out at me, and I think this is unforgivable, was that Mr. X, the leader of the crew, didn't have a German accent. I mean, come on. That's one of the main things that stand out from the story as a whole. And the action on the ship is a conflation of the many trips Reinhold claimed to have taken with discussions of free energy and and all kinds of stuff. Lots of stuff that comes later in the books we see here sort of presented as as his first trip and his initial introduction to them shifts back to the interview room where the two men painfully slowly move through the details of of how Schmidt told the authorities about his sighting, the investigation of the scene, and dealing with the public, and at the end we see Schmidt swearing on a bible that his story is true. He'll be doing some additional swearing on bibles in the not too distant future. Oh, actually, the last shot was a very detailed copyright notice. Uh, the rights belong to Bovic Incorporated of Grants Pass, Oregon, a mining company, which is weird. Ron Ormond and Reinhold Schmidt would have one more encounter. Schmidt would have a couple slightly more than walk-on appearances in Ormond's 1963 film, Please Don't Touch Me, an absolutely horrible film about a young wife's frigid... I can't even say it, frigidity and the unsavory reasons for it. That's a real thing, folks. In the interests of ufological thoroughness, I have viewed this movie, and it is bad. It is it is super bad. So Reinhold Schmidt has speaking engagements, he's got books, he's got a movie that's gonna be coming out. What's he doing? How's his career going? I mean, things can't end badly here, can they? Things begin to fall apart in April of 1961. This is from the April 13th edition of the Oakland, California Tribune. Flying saucer passenger held in $5,000 bunco ride. A dapper 64-year-old man who claims he's been all over the world in flying saucers was brought back to earth today and jailed on two counts of grand theft in Oakland. Reinhold O. Schmidt was arrested in Bakersfield and returned here last night. Oakland Police Inspector Lester King said Schmidt misrepresented himself to Ava Newcomb, 50, of 4185 Wilshire Boulevard in obtaining $5,000 for two mining ventures last year. Here's how Schmidt got $5,000 from Mrs. Newcomb, according to King. Mrs. Newcomb met Schmidt at one of his lectures in Oakland. She became interested in a mine bearing pre-energizing crystals after he displayed what he called a sample of the material. She gave Schmidt $2,000 to buy the mine. About three weeks later, Schmidt returned and told her he was just back from a trip to Alaska aboard a flying saucer from Venus and recounted stories of little green people, Geiger counters, and other special equipment. He told the woman that with the special equipment he had discovered the richest vein of gold ever found in Alaska. Schmidt told Mrs. Newcomb that for $3,000 he would locate the claim and put it in their names. Three weeks later, he returned to tell her he had gone to Alaska to file the claim, but was told he would have to establish residence for six months. He explained he used her $3,000 to buy a house trailer and hire an Eskimo to live in it to make the claim legal. Schmidt was found living well in the Padre Hotel in Bakersfield. Inspector King, asked by a reporter in Bakersfield how he intended to return with Schmidt to Oakland, replied, quote, maybe we'll go up in a flying saucer with little green men. So all of this mining talk starts to make sense. In fact, I didn't mention it before, but in the film, the narrator, when he's explaining who Reinhold is, says that he's not only a grain buyer, but involved in the mineral business. The story would get even better, or worse, depending on your point of view. This is from a few days later, May 2nd, 1961. Saucer passenger held to answer. Reinhold Schmidt, who claims to be a veteran of flying saucer travel, was held to answer today to two counts of grand theft. Schmidt, 64, appeared for preliminary examination in municipal court and was freed on $10,500 bail after being held for superior court. He is charged with misrepresenting himself to Ava Newcomb, 50, in obtaining $5,000 for two mining ventures last year. Nothing is more exciting than attending the premiere of your film while out on bail awaiting trial for grand theft. That trial wouldn't take place until October. This is from the October 18th issue of the Tribune. Mrs. Ava Newcomb has a house full of rocks flying saucer expert Reinhold O. Schmidt told her had miraculous healing powers, but she's in Highland Hospital today. Mrs. Newcomb, chief witness in Schmidt's Superior Court grand theft trial, collapsed in the Alameda County Courthouse yesterday. Judge Donald K. Quayle recessed the trial moments earlier because she broke down under cross-examination by Schmidt's attorney, John Forsyth. Doctors at Highland Hospital said the 50-year-old Oakland widow was suffering... Quote, a disorientation induced by the strain of the trial, end quote. She spent four hours on the witness stand yesterday telling a jury of seven men and five women how she, quote, mortgaged a little apartment house I own, end quote, to get $5,000 to invest in two mining ventures with Schmidt. Today, Deputy District Attorney John Meade sought to prove that the crystals Schmidt gave Mrs. Newcomb were actually purchased from an agent and did not come from the mining claim she invested in. Fred Babcock, a Bakersfield mining consultant, testified the papers Schmidt used to identify the location of the mine matched those Schmidt and he had drawn for a joint uranium mining venture in the same area. The mining ventures, she said, were a quarry full of pre-energized quartz with miraculous healing powers and an Alaska gold mine Schmidt told her he found while flying to the North Pole in a spaceship from Saturn. Mrs. Newcomb's voice had quavered throughout her testimony, and she daubed at her eyes with a twisted handkerchief frequently as Meade led her gently through her story of her dealings with Schmidt. She related his account of meetings with the flying saucer people, and the jury watched solemn-faced as she identified pieces of quartz handed to her by Meade as stones which Schmidt said the people from Saturn had given him. She wept openly when she identified one small stone as, quote, the one he said the Space Brothers sent me as a gift, end quote. Mr. Schmidt said he was taken into a pyramid through a secret chamber and shown a spaceship in which Jesus flew to heaven. He said he felt the crown of thorns and touched the cross, she said. Under cross-examination, Mrs. Newcomb admitted she had, quote, been a student of flying saucers, end quote, long before she met Schmidt on March 11, 1960. It was on the day after this encounter she testified that she agreed to give Schmidt $2,000 for half-interest in the crystal mine Schmidt said had been pointed out to him by the saucer people. Later, we went to my attorney and had a partnership agreement drawn, she added. Forsythe dug into the partnership agreement and tried to make Mrs. Newcomb admit the legal papers made no reference to the fact that she was buying half-interest in a quarry mine. I took him at his word, Mrs. Newcomb said as she fingered a copy of the agreement. Isn't it a fact, Mrs. Newcomb, the attorney said, that the agreement between you and Mr. Schmidt merely provided that you would distribute the quartz crystals he would supply to you? You were to sell them and he was to advertise them in his lectures? Mrs. Newcomb said she sold crystals at prices fixed by Schmidt from March 30th through August 15th. She said she stopped selling them when state authorities informed her Schmidt was violating postal laws and added that the remaining crystals were placed in sacks and are still in her basement. Referring to her earlier testimony that she invested her money because Schmidt told her the stones had healing powers, Forsyth asked, did you at any time try to verify that claim? No, but I never told anybody they had healing powers. That would have been against the law, she replied. This is really horrible, yet I cannot look away. You got this This poor old woman in the hospital from stress, from the trial she's part of because she's been defrauded by a guy. But it's very clear that, that she was maybe not planning to defraud people, but planning on selling them junk uh, because it was from the space people or a space people-authorized mining operation. A week later, the uh, jury would, uh, would go into deliberations, and in this article, a uh, subsequent article from October 25th, we get a glimpse into the strategy employed by the defense. Part of the defense case was the showing of a film, Edge of Tomorrow, about flying saucers and space visitors. Schmidt claimed that the movie would substantiate statements he made about experiences he had with space people. Judge Quayle ruled that the 55-minute-long picture could be shown to the jury for the limited purpose of illustrating Schmidt's experiences that he claims. Edge of Tomorrow, which the defendant says he is releasing to 50 theaters here and abroad, is based upon his story of having met occupants of a Saturn spaceship at Kearney, Nebraska, November 6, 1957. On the witness stand yesterday, Schmidt emphatically denied that he had courted Mrs. Newcomb, a widow living at 4185 Wilshire Boulevard, after meeting her at one of his spacecraft lectures. When Deputy District Attorney John Meade produced a flowered, sentimental birthday card Schmidt had sent Mrs. Newcomb, he declared, It didn't mean anything. It didn't represent my feelings. I bought a whole bunch of the cards from a handicapped person. The state contends he duped Mrs. Newcomb into investing in a worthless mine claim in Tulare County. The prosecution drew from Schmidt that he had obtained $25,000 from two Southern California women, also space people believers, to finance Edge of Tomorrow. He admitted that although he had claims on the Tulare mine, known as Saturn Quarries, he never developed it. Quartz crystals, which he gave to Mrs. Newcomb to sell after advertising them in a Space Association bulletin, came from another mine at Big Pine. The Saturnians sailed their ship over this mine, he added. Schmidt denied that he said in his lectures that the crystals had curative power. Schmidt recounted flight after flight on the Saturnian spaceship, manned by a crew of six whose names he would not give because he was told by them not to reveal them. This is to avoid the possibility of a hoax, he explained. He told of the ship taking on water at his mine, of picking up his car and himself near Bakersfield, another time in Wyoming. He met the spacemen in Denver, Hollywood, and other places, and he once visited their mothership over Montana. The witness said the trips included two flights to Alaska, a stop at Greenland, a plunge into the Arctic Ocean to keep track of Russian submarines building missile bases, and a flight to Egypt where he saw the cross of Christ. The flights over Alaska and California discovered gold and other ores, he said. The state produced Dr. Carl Sagan, University of California astronomer and National Academy of Science consultant, to testify on the composition of multi-ring Saturn. That planet, the savant said, contained noxious gases in such quantity that a human being could survive for only a brief period. Yes, his defense was showing the film Edge of Tomorrow. That cannot have endeared him to the jury. Having seen the film, that I would vote guilty just based on the film. Any any man who thinks this is a good defense needs a better lawyer. Um, Schmidt comes across here as as part lunatic, part absolute scumbag, Uh, mostly scumbag, let's be honest. It took a few hours, but the jury found him guilty. Later, he'd be sentenced to one to ten years in prison, and I wasn't able to find out how long he actually served, but he moved back to Nebraska, uh, where he died in 1974. I mean, I don't know when he moved back to Nebraska, but he died in 1974. He's buried in the Oregon Trail Memorial Park Cemetery. So, what do we say about Reinhold Schmidt? It's rare with one of these relatively minor figures that you can track almost the entire arc of their UFO career taking off, peaking, and then, boom, dunzo, prison, obscurity, death. And, you know, Schmidt is one of the saucer types that I'm pretty sure has few to no people out there carrying the flag for him as far as being wrongfully imprisoned or that he was framed or anything. He's an example of the type of saucer fiend that gives the entire field a black eye by association. That's certainly what NICAP thought anyway. This was published in the March-April 1963 issue of their magazine. Help expose frauds. Con men and others who have used the UFO subject to put over various frauds may try to exploit the speeded-up search for extraterrestrial life. Several times, serious UFO research has been set back by publicity given these gentry. The case of Reinhold Schmidt is an example. Schmidt claimed to have met a saucer crew at Kearney, Nebraska. Later, he said that a spaceship crew had flown him over the North Pole, then under the Arctic ice. From this, he graduated to outer space flights and swindling. Last year, he was convicted of tricking a widow out of thousands of dollars by claiming he had some miraculous crystals from Saturn, which would help heal crippled children. And it's interesting. I mean, I, I agree with their their sentiment, but they sort of mix up some details and that they flat out sort of misrepresent some things especially saying that Schmidt had been to other planets he said he was going to be taken to other planets at some point that's not the same not the same thing but for the most part they're right on and as much as nicap's anti-contact stance irritates me because mostly because the history of ufology has demonstrated that there are self-interested liars and grifters in every aspect of the field you got to admit during this golden age some of the shadiest characters were More in the contactee segment of the ufological population. As for Schmidt, his sheer audacity uh, moves him near the top of my list of favorite contactees. Not contactees I think had legitimate experiences of one kind or another, but just ones I kind of like. His story also demonstrates just how easy it was to draw a crowd as a UFO speaker during this time, and taking the instance of Schmidt being grilled by the kids in California— the increasing scrutiny being directed at those making claims for Schmidt. The saucer life was just one more interlude in a longer life of grift, graft and gullible people. As usual, uh, there are links to some of the material discussed in the show notes. Special thanks this episode to Brian Rosenquist for research assistance on the films of Ron Ormond, including edge of tomorrow. Thank you also, as I should every episode, um, to librarians everywhere for operating all of the interlibrary loan systems that get me stuff um, affordably. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Media LLC. Media, we're a friend of every man, farmers, etc. Till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you.